Sport is a religion. It inspires society. Welcome to the Skin Citizens of Sport podcast, where Jamie Fuller tackles the issues that matter to sport and the world. Skins, rise up. Uh, good morning. I'm pleased to be joined this morning by Lisa Stalaker. Uh, we're in Sydney. And Lisa is, well, how do I describe Lisa? Probably she's been regarded as the greatest women's all-round cricketer in the world. That's Lisa. very sweet of you. Well, it's true, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but some people may think so. Uh, I certainly came across a number of great all-rounders, but uh, look, it's a pleasure to be here and lovely to see you and finally meet you. Yeah, me too. I've heard a lot about you, um, particularly from my good buddy, Sean Martin, and we'll, we'll talk about him shortly uh, and his initiative, uh, which you co-created, I gather, uh, Fair Break. But let's, um, let's just talk a little bit about you first and your background, because you you're particularly unusual uh, in that you were born in India and uh, how old were you when you were left with the orphanage? You were, uh, I think a couple of days, uh, a day. Uh, I think the story goes that my biological uh, mother checked into the hospital, checked in under a different name, gave birth, the next day disappeared. Uh, and thankfully there was an orphanage uh, just off the, off, the, off the hospital. So... Um, from straight away, I was put in the orphanage, and uh, thankfully, three weeks later, I um, I managed to coax with my big brown eyes uh, my uh, adoptive parents. And this was in Pune. Yes. In Pune in India, nineteen seventy-eight. Seventy-nine. Seventy-nine. You just added a year Sorry, to I didn't me. Thank to you. you. Um, so you're born. Three weeks later, I think your adopted parents adoptive parents were looking for. A little boy. They were. Uh, they uh, they were living in America at the time. So my father, um, born and bred in India, and my mother was white English. Uh, and because of my father's nationality, they could adopt easily in India. Uh, so they kind of went on a search for a, a little boy because they already had um, a girl who was six years older than myself. Uh, so they thought a boy she would... Was, she was adopted as well? Yes, yeah, she was. Um, so they thought, wow, we could kind of complete the family. So they went on the search, uh, went through Mumbai, a number of orphanages there. Uh, they only had a couple of days left before they were heading back to America because they were living in Michigan at the time. <clears throat> and uh, they, uh, some of the friends actually said, why don't you head to Pune because there's actually some orphanages around there. So they went there... Again, they couldn't find a connection um, with with a baby, and uh, one of one of the employees said, "Oh, actually, there's. I know you're looking for a boy, but there's a little girl that's kind of out on loan with big brown eyes." Yeah, uh, why don't you go just have a look at her before you you head off? And story goes, I did, and my mother fell in love with me, and and the rest is history. Beautiful, and I think I read somewhere that you didn't have a passport. No, I didn't have a passport. Um, so uh, with the family kind of travelling back to uh, the US, in, in, I, think it, I think they might have potentially picked me up on a Friday and travelling uh, uh, to the, the States on uh, a Monday or a Tuesday. Uh, and to get a passport in India is hard work, especially when um, basically my father was my foster uh, I wasn't adopted by them officially until we were in Kenya. So uh, my father um, made some, some, some calls and uh, his father was quite um, uh, well off in the sense he, he worked in the ministry <clears throat> in Bombay. So uh, obviously he could call upon some high-powered power, people and there was one person in, um, who my grandfather had done a, a real favour for and um, when my father rang up, he said, I've been waiting to repay the favour, so, yep, we'll get it done. So you got a passport pretty much instantly? Yep, which never happens. And then you didn't have President Trump in place then, so you're <laughs> no. able to get a visa pretty quickly as well? Correct, and off I went. That's amazing. And so went to Michigan, back to the States, to Michigan. Mm -hmm. And then how long, how old were you when you went to Kenya? Uh, 18 months, uh, oh. and then we went to Kenya, and we, uh, we were there until I was about four, so another two years. Um, and then we were actually on our way. So the rest of the family had an Australian passport and I was still travelling on an Indian passport. 
My father was, we were travelling to the West Indies because my father was going to do a medical degree um, in Kingston, Jamaica, and they wanted me on an Australian passport because you can get in and out of certain countries uh, a lot what, easier. What, what, what gave you the right, <coughs> what gave your family the right to an Australian passport? Uh, they had already lived here um, when my sister was a baby. Um, and back then, I think they applied for an Australian citizenship and they got it. Um, so, yeah, uh, but then we landed uh, in Sydney and I think we just said, look, Dad, enough's enough. Let's, this place looks pretty cool. Why don't we just stay here? And we did. And your father was a, a missionary? He was. Uh, he, he's had a, career, a different career every 10 years. So originally he started out as an engineer, um, had his own business in India, and then went uh, and became a seven-day Adventist uh, a minister. Uh, and then when we were living in Africa, uh, he was, I think, the head of East Africa um, for the Seven Day Adventists. And we were, and then he was going to become a doctor. So then we were on our way for him to study that. In the end, came to Sydney. We left the church, um, and uh, my father became a telecommunications. Uh, then he became a hypnotherapist, a sports psychologist. He's done it all. That's amazing. And so in Kenya, were you in Nairobi, were you? Or yep. How, and I mean, obviously you're too young to... I, my first memories of uh, being a child was certainly in Kenya. Um, <clears throat> there, you know, there was... A, <clears throat> sorry, I've got the flu. <coughs> uh, <clears throat> there was... Um, we went on a safari and I remember, you know, you could stand up on the roof and look out one of my first memories is an elephant coming towards us and I'm screaming, why are we not moving? And the guy's like, we cannot take off because it's going to chase us, so we just stay still. Um, yeah, so I've got a few few memories of the time over there, which is great. And, um, you know, recently I went back to Zimbabwe to commentate on an ICC um, World Cup qualifiers and uh, there's something really magical about that countryside. I don't know, it's just... Um, it's very peaceful and, and I know it hasn't been for a long period of time, but, um, yeah, Africa is an amazing country at, in its entirety. Yeah, my, my brother was conceived in Kenya. <coughs> my parents, after they got married in England, they went and lived in Kenya um, for a few years as well. And my, my father always talks about how, what a magnificent country it was. Mm. And I always hark back to that. Mm. Okay, and then... Um, so here you are, you're in Sydney, you're, you're growing up in Sydney, and your father also was a bit of a cricket fanatic. Well, he's Indian, so he hasn't, you know, it's in the blood. So uh, as most Indians, they love their cricket. My father never played at any high level, um, played on the streets, in the schoolyard, that type of thing. Uh, but certainly he he loved the game and he wanted to kind of, take us to games and so he's from a young age we were going to the SCG and um, unlike my sister who preferred to be indoors reading books and doing everything but being outside uh, I was daddy's little girl so whatever dad wanted to do I, I did it with him um, so cricket was one of the things that I used to play with him in the backyard and uh, yeah I, I, I think I fell in love with the game when I went to the SCG when I was young and you know you, you put your green and gold on you take your you, you steal one of mum's sheets and you paint Aussie, 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 oi, 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 you know, the silly things that you might do. And, uh, it, you know, back then we, I think we went into the old Bradman uh, stand and, you know, you join the Mexican wave and you have ice cream, you have hot chips. Like, it's a pretty cool experience as a kid. I don't know if I watched any of the cricket, but I thought this was pretty cool. And then when did you start playing? Well, I, I, I kept playing in the backyard and... Uh, I think it, it went, I started to notice that there were kids playing on a Saturday morning. And I said, Dad, you know, I'd like to play cricket. And he goes, oh, I don't think girls can play. Because back then, women's cricket, and my father coming out to Australia was like, I don't think girls are allowed. So he, he, uh, he approached the local cricket club, which was West Pennant Hills Cherry Brook, and he said, oh, look, my daughter would like to play. And they're like, well, we haven't had any females ever, ever. Uh, and they said, okay, well, why didn't she come down to the, the trial? So this is under 10s. So I was nine years of age. 
and I, remember, I still remember the, the school, you know, we went, um, went to the school and the nets were at the back and we pulled up and all the boys were there and I looked at that and I didn't want to go out of the car, you know, all brave and, you know, wanting to do it initially and then once I got there I started to chicken out. Um, but uh, the guys were great. Um, the coaches, which was, you know, a couple of the fathers, um, were really supportive and helpful and, you know, I didn't know if I'd fit in and I remember the first game I played um, out at Dural um, and uh, the first delivery I bowled, I picked up a wicket. So since then, you know, from there, the, the rest of the guys kind of liked me and I think they enjoyed teasing their, their mates that they got they were out by a chick. So uh, there were a few guys, probably about four guys, that I played um, six years of, of boys' cricket with. Um, actually, one of the guys recently just got in contact with me on LinkedIn. So um, we're going to hopefully try and catch up during the summer. But they were great. They were kind of like my big brothers, and um, they really helped and developed me. And, and whilst... Uh, Whilst I start, once I realised women actually played the game, which was about when I was about 12 or 13, I still made sure that I played boys' cricket in the morning and women's cricket in the afternoon because I, I felt I got challenged more. You know, I got my first you know, bouncer that I ducked into, obviously, and split my head open. and It was always a, a challenging experience and it was good and I think that's what, that's what enabled me to, to perform well in women's cricket and, um, you know... You, you look at all of the best female players, even now in the Australian team, and they've played boys' cricket for a good part of their youth. So uh, certainly if you're getting an opportunity and you're able to, to bat, bowl and field and, and you know not be thrown down to fine leg and, and get a go every now and again, I, I highly recommend any females to, to play in boys' sport if you can, as long as you can. You don't need to, to kind of progress straight away into the women's game. And when did you realise that you were good? How old were you? Oh, I don't know if you ever realised you were good. Oh, but surely there must be some point. Where there, you... Well, tennis was my first love. Tennis was the one that I wanted to play at the highest level. Cricket was fun. Cricket was a team sport with your mates. Uh, so tennis was the one where I started going, um, doing elite camps, one-on-one -on -one coaching, fitness program I started so and did you think you could play at the highest level or did you for tennis yeah in tennis uh, I wanted to I, I started yeah, getting I into on. I also wanted to represent <laughs> Australia in cricket and rugby but yeah that, that was never going to happen I got into like the Met North sides and CHS sides um and was in you know the McDonald's elite programs I was winning trophies at the local kind of tennis competitions that we'd have and then started, and I was just about to kind of start going into all of the other competitions around, especially New South Wales, and then potentially around Australia. But one thing that I did realise, it was tennis was a real bitchy sport. You know, I, I would play doubles as well. So all of a sudden my, my teammate, I'd be playing against them in a final or the next week against each other in singles. And um, it, it, it just... it. I didn't enjoy it, and there was there was one time where I actually threw a game of tennis that I didn't get into the next level because I didn't want to play anymore. And my father realised that. I think that he stormed off actually because he knew I was throwing the game. So you're the sort of person that I hate, you know. The, 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 the... I don't think I would have got there. Don't worry. I don't think no, I would have made it. Someone who can play at, at that level in two different sports. It's a bit like Elise Perry, you know. Yeah. You would have played with Elise, of course. You know, represented Australia in soccer and represented Australia in cricket. And there were, I remember the guys at school who, you know, first 15, first 11, and then you get the odd one who you really want to throttle, who's also ducks of the school as well, you know, academic brilliance. No, that was definitely not me. As much as I disappointed my father, studies was not something that I, that I enjoyed doing. I much preferred to, to pick any kind of sport, especially school sport, which meant that I missed out on school, so... I did what I needed to do to pass. That's basically it. So you throw the tennis match. I throw the tennis match. And then I start putting more uh, emphasis in my cricket. So probably around 15, I sat down with my father and I said, right, you know, I, w I want to play at the highest level now. 
And, you know, thankfully my father was a sports psychologist, so we sat down and we went through the goals of, you know, which goals I needed to kind of tick off at one time. So obviously the Australian team, and then you kind of work your way backwards. Um, and probably about 10 years ago, we came across that same sheet, and I was pretty close. I hit the mark pretty close. I think I was six months out from when I initially made my debut from the Australian team. So, uh, yeah, that's when, I, that's when I put, I guess, all my eggs in one basket. And what was your most amazing, um, how do I put this, what was the probably the, the biggest impact for you? Was it playing for New South Wales or playing for Australia? At what point did it really sort of shake you or did it not shake you at all? Was it all fairly mundane? Which I wouldn't believe if you'd say it was. <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't mundane. I think that the... <clears throat> the the group of players that shaped me as a cricketer, um, I'd have to say it'd be the first few years that I played for New South Wales, so 97, 98, 99, probably 97, 98, because I was still playing with a lot of older players, um, young, fresh out of high school, um, get the opportunity to, to make my debut, and just played with some legends of the game. But what they did teach me was a history of women's cricket. Um, players that came before that we were very fortunate because it wasn't that long um, before I, I, I came in at the time where we didn't have to pay to play for our state whereas we had to pay to play junior stuff but we got to the level once you're opens you didn't have to pay. So they kind of reinforced how lucky they when did, were. When did that change? So before before what year did people have to pay to play for their state? I believe it was before the, the current Women's National Cricket League. So 96, 90, no, 95, 96 was the first year of WNCL, I think. So just before that, they used to have a two-week camp, a uh, two-week tournament. Uh, and that's when players were still paying to play for their state. It's quite amazing, isn't it? And, and particularly the younger um, guys coming through today. I, I say to everybody I meet who, who play cricket that you must go and kiss the arse of Ian Chapel, and pray at the, the statue <coughs> of Kerry Packer for what those guys did back in the 70s that completely changed the face of world cricket. Because mm. uh, that's up until that stage. I mean, these guys were being paid like $10 a test or $50 a test and having to forego months to travel to England for an Ashes, for example, for very little money. So it's, it, it was a, a massive revolution, wasn't it? And here you are saying that it was a, not, not too dissimilar in 1996. Yeah, we just didn't have a, a Mrs Packer who was <laughs> behind us. But certainly uh, if you, you look at now what female players are able to earn here in Australia especially, it, it's just astounding. I, I retired from the game in 2013 I was ranked number one. Timed that really well, didn't you? Just yeah. before the money rolled. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was ranked number one on the contract system and I earned 15000 We fast forward five years uh, and the highest paid player I think is about 140000 So the jump has been a lot quicker than what I thought. Can it get better? Absolutely. Yeah. But we're on the right path. And it has to get better because even hundred and forty grand, it's a, a good amount of money. Uh, but it can certainly there's still a massive gap between the 140 for a women and what 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 would someone like Steve Smith has been on before the the debacle? Um, oh, he'd be earning you know close to a million dollars, yeah. and then you've got to think of all the the corporate endorsements. endorsements. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's okay. So how tell us about your first test? My first test. Because it wasn't, I, I gather it wasn't a particularly brilliant one with the ball, was it? Uh, now I'm trying to think where my first test uh, was. It the Gabba? See, I don't even see. Very you're bad. not like most cricketers I know. Because <laughs> most cricketers I know know all their statistics. They know everything. No, about I'm them. not like that. Uh, I think it, yeah, it was the Gabba. Uh, so one week. The, the, yeah, one week I opened the batting, and I struggled. So I opened the batting with Belinda Clark, and. Uh, I think the first innings I, I scored, no, you know, nothing. Um, and then the second innings, I had a partnership with Belinda, but I think I still scored a duck. I think it's, it, it's up there for one of the longest, you know, ducks. 
but uh, I didn't. We didn't lose a wicket in the first period of time, which everyone thought that was great. But uh, yes, the the second test was a lot more memorable. Um, that's where I was able to score my first hundred. Uh, we were in a, a bit of strife as well against England, and uh, Alex Blackwell and I put on a, a big partnership to kind of save the test. And so well, I don't talk about the first one. See, no, I don't even enough. remember the first. So one. the first test was in England, effectively. No, I'm, Lisa, the first test was in England. Let's remember the first test as being in England when you scored 100. Okay, yeah, there sure, was a, let's there go was a, There was a practice game beforehand that yeah, didn't really count. Right, no. Sure. No, no, my, my first tour was 2001 to, to England um, and I ran the drinks for the three tests that we played but obviously made my debut in the one-day format, which was great. I think the first, the first wicket I, I actually got... Um, was Claire Taylor, I think, who, who's just been announced as um, is going to be inducted into the ICC Hall of Fame. But it was a full toss that she missed. So I'm thankful that she missed the full toss. It was a, a, an intentionally bold full toss. Yeah. A brilliant part of your plan. Shit gets wickets. Haven't you heard that saying? <laughs> <laughs> that was my best delivery, the old full toss. And pulling on the baggy green, was it something really special? Well, you know, you look at... at uh, um, what happens now when a player makes their debut? And I've I've handed over a cap in tests. You Who know, too? Uh, Kristen Beams, um, and you look at how it's presented. They get their nice Albion bag with the number, and it's the big thing. Whereas when we played, when I played first for the Australian side, the baggy green was thrown in your kit bag, and there you go. There, there you go. And it was actually um, we played with the uh, Australian coat of arms, not the the cricket. Um, emblem as well so it took us a few more years before we changed to CAs or what the, the men use but uh, yeah so it wasn't a big deal really in that sense but to, to play test cricket to to play that longer format as a as a player that's what you want to test yourself on it's the hardest form of the game yes we can play t20 and one day cricket which is fun and exciting and but the real skill to know whether you're good enough is in the test arena. And that's why players still to this day, if you ask them, they all want to play test cricket. Administrators might go, we're losing money because of test cricket because financially it's not viable, five days, what, what goes on for five days anymore in this day and age? But as players, you want to test yourself. You want to know if you're the best. It's a bit like comparing a a three-star Michelin restaurant with McDonald's, right? I mean, can you ever remember a fabulous burger you had at McDonald's? No, never. And so the idea, I find the idea, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a cricket tragic and I adore test cricket, but I'm not a fan of one day or, frankly, 2020. I know it can be exciting and I know it's bringing in a new spectator and a new age group and demographic. But the, the things that you can remember from tests which will stay with you forever. You don't yep. have those moments. Well, they're very few and far between. True. In, in one day. It is true. Yeah. And, and you, you, you correctly point out that there is a, a desire at the administration level to minimise the amount of tests. And you, as you say, you can, you can understand it when you look at, for example, have a look at a test match in South Africa and look at the empty stands. I mean... We, of course, play the Ashes and you go to England or in Australia for the Ashes and you'll have packed stadia, maybe not for five days, but you'll have huge numbers of people come along and massive interest. But I think outside of Australia-India, Australia-England and maybe Australia-India, there's a real limited um, a real, real limited interest in the rest of Test Creek. I don't know, for example, a West Indies versus New Zealand Test match. I don't know whether that's going to draw many. No, every other country really struggles. It's it, it really is Australia and England um, from a, an audience point of view, as in people bums on seats. Um, in India, there may not be many people on at the ground, but boy, they're all tuning in on TV or through their digital means. But it's the experience of being there. I I, I think potentially, you know, administrators have been fortunate enough to kind of. What other sport has three different formats that you can throw money towards and, and get an audience in? I think we've got to look at test cricket differently. Um, and I think that, you know, that I'm sure if you ask the players, would you forego a little bit of money 
to invest back into test cricket to allow you to keep playing? I reckon a lot of them would say, yeah, okay, yeah. And it's also great. I love talking to my American friends about a, a match that can go for <laughs> yeah. five days. And no result. And end in a draw. But not only that, end in the most gripping draw. Yeah. <laughs> I remember 2005 being at um, Old Trafford mm. for, for the Ashes test. Yep. And it got down to, I mean, we couldn't win. We had to get up, I don't know, 200 and something runs. We, we couldn't win. But it got down to Brett Lee and Glenn McGrath. We were nine down. Yeah. And they needed one wicket. And I think it was about three overs that the two guys had to face. Mm. And the tension was unbelievable. And we saw it out, which was, it was just spectacular. And when you try and describe that feeling and describe that, that context to an American who are they're just horrified at any the idea of any match taking five days, let alone finishing in a draw, mm. is quite staggering and unique. Yeah, and you can understand why people don't get test cricket as well. Um, and that's why the, the what the three formats you take your your new audience on a journey. You bring them in through T Twenty, expose them to one dayers, and then hopefully get them to to fall in love with the test cricket like we have. So my wife hates cricket. <laughs> you poor man. Yeah, she hates cricket, but. Um, I took her to the Ashes here in North Sydney, the Ashes test. The women's Ashes, yeah. And she, and she loved it. She absolutely loved it. So you're dead right. I mean, it's, it's so much of it is just being exposed to it and yep. seeing it firsthand. Mm. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about then what you're doing now because you're on the board of uh, FIGA, which is the, it's the International Cricketers Association, isn't it? Yep. And you're also on the board of the Australian Cricketers Association. No longer. Not anymore? Not anymore. Uh, just recently went off. Uh, Elisa Healy has taken my, my spot. Um, I'd been on that, on that board, the Australian Cricketers Association, for about six years. Uh, and I had three... When I first came onto the board, I had three, three aims, three goals that I wanted to achieve. Uh, the first thing was that... Um, female players weren't necessarily seen as full members. I think we were still seen as associate members. So we were able to then finally change the constitution and we became full members. Our female past players weren't able to be members, so made sure that that happened. And I always wanted and always felt for, for women's cricket to really go grow, they need to be part of an MOU or the player payment pool. Um, I always believed that as, as a female, I was still contributing to the player payment pool or the revenue that Cricket Australia had generated because I had Fox Sports, so I, you know, I'd paid tickets sometimes to go watch matches. Uh, and the reason why I did that was because I played the game. So females were, in, were basically helping, propping it up as well. So why shouldn't we get a cut, a slice of that? And obviously with the MOU deal that happened last year, finally um, there was a deal that was made for all cricketers, not just male players um, in the state and international, but also females. So, you know, I ticked off all my th the th three things that I wanted to do when I came onto the board. And also it's important for the board to have someone that, that's a current player. And Elisa Healy, obviously the wicketkeeper for the Australian team, um, can certainly pass on her knowledge and, and the feelings of the current playing group and where they want to take the game, which I think is is really important for them to drive it now. Um, and I think Elisa Healy will be excellent in that role. But what that did allow me to do, then then the learnings that I, I, I had at, um, at the ACA level was to go into FICA. Um, so Australia kind of really is the first... Players Association to really bring in the uh, female players, not only current playing players but state players and also past players. So the learnings that we had there, I could now pass on to other um, players associations from different countries as they try and open it up to the female players as well. So it's been exciting. Um, you know, we're trying to trying to ascertain a lot of information about what is women's cricket globally. You know, we can find out what it is in England and the pathways and contracts and same in Australia and South Africa, but subcontinent-wise, we don't know. Obviously, there's a lot of associates at the moment that are playing. There's actually an ICC qualifier, qualifying event that's taking place in the Netherlands where, you know, teams, teams um, like Papua New Guinea are, are taking place and they're trying to qualify for the World Cup later on this year. So... 
there's a lot of women's cricket going on, but what does that look like? So Fika's driving that, um, and I've, I've really enjoyed the interactions that I've had already with the board there. Um, Tom Moffat, who is basically the COO, is, has got a great vision of what Fika needs to be like, working closely with the ICC. Not as closely as I think we would like, but um, certainly... Uh, is, there, is there an us and them at ICC level? Uh, I don't think, I, maybe, I can't comment before, I can only comment um, on my recent involvement and certainly the relationship with ICC is, is growing, it's strong. I think, I think there's a great understanding that the players want to help, they want, we all want, we actually all want the same thing, we want the game to prosper and cricket to be a global sport. Uh, how we go about it, the players have a view and the administrators have a view. And sometimes the administrators are right and the players are right. But uh, we're all trying to do the right thing and I think when we realise that and we come together, you know, that we could actually achieve a lot. But sometimes, and in the past, there's been, there certainly has probably been an us versus them. Yeah, look, I don't want to put you in a difficult position. But I'll, <laughs> but I'll ask you this question. <laughs> yeah, I'll just make a couple of contentious comments, potentially contentious comments. Uh, and I, I can't talk about the ICC today, but yesterday the ICC, there was a deal structured between the Aussies, the Indians and the English to the detriment of the rest of not just the test playing nations but also the associate countries to take the lion's share of the money that was generated. Um, certainly yesterday uh, there was an attitude on behalf of a lot of those directors sitting around the ICC table that they were not there for the good of the global game, they were there to represent their own countries. Has that changed? Well, certainly... Cause, sorry, because I can see that from a player's perspective, there's, they've, got nothing to, they've got nothing selfish, if you like, to get out of that sort of advocacy. And I can see the players saying, absolutely, we want to grow the game globally and we want to create more opportunities for our brothers and sisters in not just test-playing countries but associates as well. I, I have, I've yet to see anything come out at ICC level that represents that. Well, they've certainly wound back the... The, the three, the deal that was struck, which you spoke about. So, um, oh, but the fact that it could happen in the first instance. Well, it has happened, and um, we can argue the merits of whether it was the right thing or the wrong thing to do, but they, they realise that they can't continue um, a structure like that. It's not beneficial for the global game, and, and they are winding that back. So I think... Firstly, well done. Have they wound it back to where it was before, do you know? That I can't tell you. I don't know. Because initially, if, if I remember correctly, you had 10, 10 test-playing nations equally sharing 75% of the revenue, and then you had 95 associate countries sharing the other 25%. Uh, and from memory, I think the English, the Australian and the Indians, between them, took 52% of the revenue, with the Indians taking the lion's share. I think Australia's went from 7.5% to 7.9%. So Australia got just a little bump. England went from 75 to 10.8%. And India took 35% or something huge. Uh, and all this was devastating for the likes of South Africa and Pakistan and New Zealand. Uh, and West Indies, obviously. And Sri Lanka, of course. Um, I just... I, I, I would love to see the game looked at collectively. And mind you, this isn't just a cricket thing. This is every sport. You know, every international federation, you've got people sitting on the board looking at representing their own piece of the pie. Whereas wouldn't it be great if you had a bunch of independents sitting on the board saying well, we're here for the good of the game? Yeah, and, and they have they have actually appointed the first female um, independent director who is the CEO of Pepsi. I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but first independent director and a female who's survived the corporate world and, and done, a, based on her CV, has, has ticked all the boxes. So by them having an independent director, I think it's an important step moving forward from a governance point of view. Because I agree, and, and it's, that's certainly what Cricket Australia did. You know, they started to, to break down just the members from each of the states sitting on the CA board that they started to put independent directors in. So... All of this takes time and it's frustrating, I'm sure, for someone that sits outside and you want to see the changes happen quickly for the, betterment, for the benefit of uh, the game. Uh, it, 
what I have noticed uh, in my time uh, on the boards is that things take a long time um, to break down, especially cricket that is um, so steeped in history. Uh, but what I have seen is things are getting better. Can they be? Can it? Can it be done quicker? Absolutely. But with, I think everyone's heading in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, look, I was like a lot of people horrified at, at, at that hijacking, if you like. And the justification was that the Indians had threatened to withdraw from world sport if they didn't get the Aussies and the, the Poms to support them. Let me ask you, if Australia and England had turned back, turned, turned around to the Indians and said, well, fine, if you want to withdraw from international cricket, go for it. Could you imagine the Indian population saying, yeah, we'll be happy just to watch domestic cricket? They would have had a massive internal revolution going on within India, surely. I mean, Potentially. Yeah. I guess we'll never know, will we? Well, no. We or maybe we will know in the future. Who knows? Yeah. I just... It's just... It, the thing that concerns me at that level is, is when the intentions are what they appear to be. Yeah. And granted that there might have been other... Well, certainly I would imagine that the players would have gone, hang on, as much as we love playing against each other, it'd be nice to play against the best in the world. Not just, we can, you know, we've got some great players in our own country, but we want to see if we're good enough. bit like the argument I said about test cricket, players want to test themselves against better oppositions. So I'd like to think that if something was ever to happen down that, that the players would kind of fight back saying, look, We've got to do this for the... Look, I know they would have. I mean, you've only got to look at South Africa pre-1993, you know, when they were shut out from world competition, not just cricket, but rugby as well and football. Mm. You know, the, the, the players were desperate, desperate to measure themselves against their international yeah. competitors. Okay, let's get off the contentious stuff. <laughs> um, with, uh, so, um, with, with also with the FICA stuff that you're doing, Oh, no, actually, look, before we go on to that, I want to yep. ask you this, because you brought up the MOU and, yep. the, and the ACA. Mm -hmm. That was a, a pretty remarkable process, looking at it from the outside. Um, I'll, I'll nail my colours to the mast. I was horrified at the way that Cricket Australia managed that process. I thought, um, I thought the consequences of the way they did that in terms of trying to divide and conquer men from women national from state and then within the national team trying to sort of carve out a couple of players and offer them extra incentives to and it was I was so pleased and proud that all the players stood firm together and and and, and stayed hard as a unit is my perception incorrect or correct is that the way it no that's 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 pretty correct and, and and it was, like you said, it was really pleasing to see some individual players who, you know, my understanding were offered anything under the sun, really. Well, let's talk uh, about, I mean, David Warner's copped a lot of crap. Yeah. Uh, recently. But he, he stood up during was, that yeah. time. He was yeah. the voice of the players. Um, Mitchell Stark was also one that came out quite strongly against... Um, the what Cricket Australia were trying to do. And the great thing was, personally, they could have gained a lot of money out of it, a lot of security, uh, but they understood they came from somewhere. They came from grassroots, from pathways, from state cricket, which, whilst it doesn't bring in a lot of money, apart from, you know, now the big bash, that state cricket is really the, the bloodline of the Australian cricket team. And if you don't look after that, then those guys aren't fortunate enough to be earning the capacity and, and playing and, and winning all the tournaments that they are. So it 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 was very um, it was a proud moment to see those guys stand up and say, no, nah, we want to have we want to share our money, so to speak, share our money with the rest of the playing group because we once came from there, and the next generation will as well. So um, that was a big moment, and I think. You know, once Cricket Australia realised they couldn't break the players, then a deal had to be struck. Yeah, and, and the, the games that were played, the, 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 the PR spin games that were played, were just... I, I couldn't believe that. They, they, they looked like rank bloody amateurs. Well, it just... I think both parties, even ACA, would look back on, 
um, at that MOU negotiation and go, right, what could we have done better? And I'm sure there were things that, um, as an organisation, we could have done better, as well as Cricket Australia. But one thing that we had in favour is we had the players behind us, behind, oh, sorry, we were behind the players. We kind of, they drove what they wanted and, and we kind of took that to the negotiating table. Uh, where ACA is a small organisation if you take away the players compared to Cricket Australia. Um, and I thought we played a pretty fair game in the sense of how we were trying to compete with them. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, the players won. And that was the main thing, that, um, that they, they were seen as a partner in the game. You know, it was almost like we were trying to wind back the clock back to 1996. Well, they were. It was. Yeah. It was. It was about turning this. Let's work together to grow the game. Let's t turn this back into a master-servant relationship, which seemed bizarre. I just think if you're going to, if you go, if you want players to buy in, then let them have a seat at the table. Yeah, because am I am I am I right in saying that the 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 model we had before was that players shared a percentage of revenue? Correct. I think even. Even during the negotiations, the players had offered to take a slightly lower percentage. So it wasn't like the players were saying, I think, I, I don't, you'll, you'll tell me I've got the numbers wrong, but I think we were getting 26% before or 25.5%. Yep. Compare that to the United States if you look Which at is, 50, oh, 50, over 50% in basketball, baseball, football, yes. hockey. Um, now, admittedly, in the United States, the NFL and the, the, the MLB and the... And the um, ML, the, the basketball, the NBA, they don't fund grassroots, okay, we understand that, mm. but there's still, from a player's perspective, a significant difference. And for the players to, to, to then not say, look, we want to go from 26 to 30 or 26 to 28%, to say we're, we're prepared to go down to 24.5%, right, let's grow the pie and we'll take a smaller share of the pie. And for Cricket Australia to turn around and say, no, you're going to get a percentage of profits... I think, I think, you know, you look now at um, where Cricket Australia is and the situation after the ball tampering affair, it kind of speaks highly about this revenue share model in the sense that, well, the players have brought the game into disrepute, have lost money, so therefore they should lose a percentage of the revenue because the revenue goes down, so they're hurt by it as well. So, But if the players do well and everything's prospering, then all of a sudden they get a percentage of the revenue that way as well. So the upside and the downside, they actually get. So in this fluctuating market, the players are on, on the roller coaster ride with you. They're not just saying, oh, we'll take this amount of money regardless of how bad the sport is going or how good the sport's going. But we'll, we'll be with you every step of the way. So I think it, it speaks highly about the revenue share model and how it works. And in the situation that Cricket Australia was in post ball tampering kind of shows that the players need to probably need to take a hit as well. Absolutely. You've got to, so, be, you've got to be accountable. For correct. It. Yeah. Um, look, a, a, just a, a, a remarkable situation. And I, a, a, funnily enough, a buddy of mine ended up eating the shit sandwich and all that, Kevin Roberts. Um, Kevin was put out as the face of this on behalf of Cricket Australia. I don't know why James Sutherland... Well, I think I do know why James Sutherland didn't want to be seen as the face of this. But uh, it just seemed to be a, um, a really dumb way to approach it. And I was, so, as I said, so pleased and proud that the players stuck together. And I think um, one thing that I tried to re reiterate when I, at the time when I was speaking to the media is if we get this right, as in the MOU to have male and female players under the one agreement, it's a blueprint for all sports. And I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, a deal was able to be struck and that the ACA and Cricket Australia can now move forward and share their experiences about, the, about bringing in female players under the one, one umbrella officially, not just, you know, nice talk. The other point I made at the time, which is, I, th I, I still maintain is very relevant, is when you're talking about a percentage of profits, then you've got to have complete and utter trust in the other the other party to be able to spend the money wisely. Uh, and I'm afraid when it comes to any governance in any sport anywhere in the world, that the transparency isn't there to enable you to see how that money's being spent. 
and so profits aren't necessarily as much as they could be or should be. Um, but that was then and this is now. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully we're beyond that. Um, hopefully, uh, you mentioned the ball tampering stuff. Um, I was, uh, again, I was disappointed with Cricket Australia's response to that. I thought that they, they missed a big opportunity. I'd, I'd like to have seen them forfeit that test and make a massive statement at the time. Oh, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think um, the fans and the South African team, um, you know, they put out a fixture. They're expected to play in opposition. Um, I said the test, not the series. Yeah. No, no, I think, I think, I think, yeah, I, I, I actually think they, they did the right thing and get back out there. I think it's important. Um you know, we could probably argue the way it all went about it and media conferences and all those type of things. But um, for the players to get back out there, it was big for them. Um, and they needed to, I think. All right. <laughs> we'll agree to disagree yeah. on that one. Um, let's talk ab about um, Fair Break. Mm -hmm. Because Fair Break started off as the Women's International Cricket League, the WICL. And you started that with Sean Martin. Yep. Um, and that's now morphed into, as I said, fair break. Uh, you've um, sort of backed down from that a little bit. You started off doing a lot of stuff with Sean, didn't you, on that? And then yeah, uh, your commentary got... Yeah, the WICL was basically born out of the fact that I retired in 2013. Um, I already told you the numbers I was getting paid uh, there wasn't a lot of cricket for females back then either. Uh, and there was space. There was space in the calendar to, to potentially have a, a T20 competition, um, a competition that we, we felt was almost like a Grand Slam event, you know, the best of the best. Uh, not tied to any certain country where you have to have a certain amount of internationals in each team. You could just literally pick the best of the best. Uh, and, and then really showcase the women's game so that people understand the skill level um, and what the girls have to, to go through to play international cricket. So that's kind of where it was kind of born from. And, and over a period of time, we, we worked, you know, with some national boards. We spoke to ICC. We spoke to FICA. You know, we, we paved the way. And I certainly think whilst the competition didn't get up, I, I think WICL certainly pushed national boards um, to all of a sudden start to think, well, hang on, what can we, we need to do a little bit better with our female players? Um, and and I think now, given the fact that we've seen such a huge increase, I think um, WICL played a played a hand in that. Uh, and and that's what I wanted to see from my point of view, selfishly, the selfish point of view, that I wanted to see women's cricket flourish. Yeah, but hang on, that's not selfish. It's it's not selfish because you've re you've retired. At this yeah, stage. I had retired. Yes, that's not selfish. No, but uh, you know, I wasn't thinking of anything bigger or um, you know the whole big women's movement or equality for all sports or all industries. It, it was purely let's see if we can get women's cricket going in the right direction. Maybe they can lead the way, and and that will allow others to follow. Uh, so, what was the ICC response like to it? Uh, they they liked the idea, um, but the ICC, you know, as as we've already discussed, is driven by the member board. So we had to align with a member, otherwise it w it wouldn't be sanctioned cricket, and therefore players wouldn't be released. So they were they were the issues that we were coming across. You know, one thing it, it did teach me and and um, was dealing at that level and the politics that go that goes behind it. You know. Here I was thinking, we're doing something great for cricket. Like, we're not here to, to take any money away from the game. I just want to help yeah, the players. No, there's no counter-argument, is there? It's <laughs> yeah. not like we could agree to disagree yeah. on that. So, um, so yeah, so it, it kind of exposed me to that whole other level. I was like, right, okay. I, I, I never saw the world like that. I thought, if you're doing something good, people will go, yep, how do I help you? <laughs> it wasn't necessarily that. But it certainly taught me different things and um, I think it's allowed me to kind of uh, have a better understanding of, of what's at play now that I'm on, on, well, I was on the ACA and now on FICA. Um, and and it, there was a period of time where the tournament just didn't seem like it was going to get up 
Um, and that's where Sean started to kind of think broader uh, and fair break kind of came out. I still remember the, the meeting that we had and there's a few of us around the table and we came up with you know, the idea of fair break and the idea and the concept was great but certainly it was out of my realm and my commentary was just starting up and uh, I said, Sean, this is actually your baby now. It's not our baby. You know, our baby was the women's competition, just a small little pocket of change that we wanted, that I wanted to see um, um, work and, and potentially get women's cricket at another level, whereas his was... His vision was big, and I'm like, I can't go on this ride with you. You know, I I, I don't have the time, and I I don't have your vision at the moment because, it, as you know, Sean, it's all in his head, and it, it keeps changing. And, and I'm like, mate, you need to tell me what you're thinking. I I don't I can't read into your mind. So um, I said, look, you're better off to to take this on your own, and and you know, wish him all the best. And um, obviously, a fair break. They played uh, a match at Wormsley, uh, which was great to see, and great to see you know a couple of current players being allowed to play, and, and obviously bringing players from all different countries. Um, the experience they would have had to play with Susie Bates and Alex Blackwell, I think uh, they'll look back on that day as one of their most memorable. So let's just let's just explain what that means. Wormsley, you talk about oh, Wormsley. Yeah. Wormsley is the private cricket ground of J. Paul Getty. Which is gorgeous, by the way. It is yeah. stunning. It is stunning. And I, it was five weeks ago from actually uh, this week, five weeks ago, and I was there for the game um, because I participated in a roundtable discussion in the morning around gender equity. Um, and it was beautiful, beautiful. And, and as you say, Sean's got this amazing vision and he's driven to do something about this imbalance that we have in gender equity in sport. Um, and so I, I was particularly pleased here because it, it not just was it at Getty's ground, because they have a they put on a Getty 11 versus World 11, I think, every year, but it, this year was the first time that they've done a women's Getty 11 versus a women's World 11. And the World 11 had 11 women from 11 countries. Uh, and I remember you mentioned Vanuatu a little earlier. Uh, I remember Sean telling the story about the, the young lady from Vanuatu who, when she arrived was so excited because it was the first time she'd ever been in a taxi. She had to take a taxi and had to get herself from Heathrow to the hotel in London. And she was all excited when she saw Sean and said, guess what, I did it. I caught a taxi on my own. Mm. I mean, we're talking about... We, we talk about Australian women earning up to 140 grand a year. There are plenty of countries around the world where these women are, are, are earning bugger all. And so, you know, when we talk about... And, and I know... We're talking about a series of, of little steps and mm. what you've done here with the Australian Cricketers Association and now what you're trying to do with FICA uh, is to go that next step and how do we protect and how do we help those women elsewhere. Mm. But, yeah, you know, it was, um, it was great to see. Uh, obviously, the game was live-streamed as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, I still believe that there is merits, even now, for the type of concept of the competition of the WICL. I think even now, if you were to have best of the best come together for two weeks somewhere, um, I think it would be an outstanding tournament. Just Because the idea was Singapore, wasn't it? The initial it, idea was yeah, Singapore. Yeah, Singapore. Quite central to, to all of the countries. But you look at recently there was a T20 tri-series uh, played over in England in Taunton and uh, uh, world records were being smashed, um, you know, in, I think South Africa was at the... They copped at both ends. I think they... they in two games in, in the one day, they, they, they went for the world record twice. Um, but it just shows you that the skill level of the girls is increasing. A lot of them now are professional, so they, they're working hard at their cricket. Um, they're, they're able to recover appropriately, which is the main thing. Uh, and you're starting to see those results uh, transpire on the cricket field. Excellent. Can we talk a little bit about Adopt Change? Yep. Um, because you've now become an ambassador for this. T tell us about the organisation. The organisation is founded by Deborah Lee Finesse. Uh, and it was 10 She's years. got a, a husband's pretty ugly pig of a man, isn't he? Yeah, he's pretty ugly <laughs> and he's not very talented either. Um, His name's Hugh Jackman, if anybody doesn't know. <laughs> and uh, about 10 years ago, so I think we had a 10-year anniversary last year, uh, ten years ago, uh, she founded the organisation. Obviously, they've both adopted some kids, and uh, 
the one thing that they started to understand was here in Australia, the, the red tape that you have to go through um, is, is quite lengthy, long, financially burdening, uh, and with so many kids without a permanent home, surely one of the avenues in, is to um, is to get them into a permanent home. So adoption is is certainly one aspect. Uh, uh, when I initially came across uh, Kerry Chikorowski, who's I think on the board, um, she heard my story of being adopted, and uh, obviously mine's a positive one. You know, yeah. Um, she said, oh, you'd be perfect for the organisation. And my initial discussion with them was, are you comfortable sharing your story because you'll cop criticism? I said, criticism for what? She said, because obviously there's not a lot of positive stories, especially here in Australia, you know, when we talk about the Indigenous youth being taken away from their families way back when, you know, adoption is kind of a dirty word. And I said, well, it's not to me, it's a blessing. Like, I'm very fortunate, so... I'm happy to share my story and as I started to share my story, you know, there's a few people on Twitter that came back and saying, oh, I, I can understand why you've been chosen, yours is a positive one. I was like, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry that mine's a positive one, so am I not to share it then? Um, but I started to realise as well the issues that people have faced because of adoption. Um, you know, depending on what age you're adopted, what memories you have, prior to that, um, especially if you've been adopted overseas, are they cultural, language issues? So for me, it was actually, it opened the door a little bit more. And, and I was the type of person, whilst I had always known about my adoption, never thought it was an issue, um, I, I never really asked any questions to my father. Um, whereas now, because of adopt change, I've started to actually have those conversations with my father of, you know, what was the process like? Um, you know, when was I actually adopted or, you know, all of those, all of those issues. And, you know, did you ever think about trying to find my biological parents? Yeah, you've never, you've never had a desire to find your biological I've parents? I've never had a, a desire. Actually, Sean Martin and I, um, when I launched my book in India, we went back to Pune and he found the orphanage. And it was actually quite fortuitous because a week later they were closing down that, um, the building and moving somewhere else so when I rang up my father he said oh did you go up the winding stairs to where the newborns were and I said yeah I did actually he goes oh we were, we walked the same footsteps so that was kind of cool um to experience that so but even when I was there the lady said would you like to find your biological parents and I said no thank you um I don't know why I have no desire I think I think I've just, I, I see that I have parents, so I don't necessarily need to find my biological parents. Yeah, no, I can, I can, I can understand that. And the idea that there are a large number of people who don't have or can't have children that want them, so there's a demand, and then you've got these kids who are looking for homes, yeah. so there's obviously a supply. Well, so, certainly I understand that the, the, the children's welfare is paramount 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 and uh, I can understand there's been some bad cases um, and hence why I understand there's the red tape to ensure that it's the right couple um, that are adopting and they go through all of the the, the checks that they need to but one thing um, one of the ministers said at uh, one of the adopt change um, uh, meetings was that here in Australia we're very quick to take kids away from their parents if we think that things aren't safe at home. But we, we don't necessarily find them a home straight away. So we keep trying to send them back to their, to their real parents when it might not be right. So it takes, so there's a lot of kids in limbo. Yeah. And one interesting study that I, that I found out that every time, for an 18 year old, if they're in the foster system, they'll go through 10 families and every time that they change a family they'll lose like six crucial I think six crucial relationships and that's you can understand why if a kid come, finally comes out of the foster system why they don't trust anyone they don't know where to go they they don't necessarily have that support system so that's why you know when um when Kerry asked me would you come on board uh, I said absolutely you know I'd love to see more people 
feel comfortable in adopting and that the process is a lot quicker so that we don't have kids jumping from house to house, that there is a permanent home for them. Lisa, we are now on 59 minutes and 20 seconds. Um, we could talk my, forever, couldn't we? And my battery's literally about to die. It's flashing madly at me. <laughs> uh, look, I just want to say thank you very much. It's been lovely chatting with you. Um, all the very best with the Adopt Change and particularly with FICA as well. Uh, and, and we didn't even touch on the commentary that you're doing, particularly in the IPL in India, which is terrific too. Yeah. Thanks Thank so much. No, thanks for having me.